We're continuing on in the book of James. This is the last sermon in chapter 4, and then chapter 5. You know, making our way through the book of James, uh, James is just one of those books that's incredibly practical and a little convicting. Kind of every week, you're kind of going, all right, is this, is this one going to be a little bit easier? Is it, is it going to be a little smoother sales? Um, and, and, and I don't know. I'll let you be the um, judge of that. But I'm excited about this text as we're closing out chapter 4. It was good for me uh, just as a reminder that who our God is and knowing who he is really does affect the way we live. Like our knowledge of God is not just some sort of cerebral gymnastics that we perform that, that doesn't actually affect us. But rather when we're in God's word, what we understand is that Our knowledge of God is to shape everything that we do. And therefore, having a right knowledge of God is very important. And and today, what James wants us to see is that our lives are to be shaped by the very power and might and rule of our God. And so if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to go ahead and stand. In James uh, chapter 4, we're going to read this together. Each week, we stand at the reading of God's Word. We do so as a means of honoring and worshiping our God, honoring the text that he has given us as it has been inspired for the purpose of our equipping and training. So chapter 4, verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go and do such and such town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Father, Father, I pray just through the power of your Spirit, help us to understand this text today. Lord, may, may the purpose of this text. May the intent that you have in the giving it to us, may it, may it come about, may it be fruitful today in our lives. I pray that you would give us wisdom, that we would know who you are, knowing that you are our powerful, mighty king, a good and righteous and faithful ruler, bringing all things under your rule. May we have joy in that and And may we look and see how our entire life is a living sacrifice to you, God. So let us pray. Bless this time as we go through your word. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. So it's kind of an interesting passage, one that we just jump into. Like, why is James talking to the church about how they make work plans? Like, is God supposed to affect the way we plan our weeks and our months? Is God supposed to affect our travel, our vacations, our weekend getaways, our sabbaticals? Like, does he affect those things? Is God supposed to affect the mundane things of our lives? And the answer is yes. I mean, all throughout the book of James, James has been bent on just showing how our faith is to affect everything about our life. 
I mean, think about it. Would the God of the Bible be worthy of all glory and honor if he, if he was only necessary for certain parts of your life? Would every knee bow before him in heaven and on earth and under earth if he only affected the Sunday gathering times? So as we start, what I want us to understand is how we got here. How we got to chapter 4, verse 13, and what's happening here, and then what's happening really throughout the rest of the book. If you remember, last week we looked at a sermon titled The Christian Life, where we walked through uh, the second or the middle part of chapter 4. And in chapter 4, verse 7, James tells the church to submit themselves to God, to humble themselves before God. He points out that God is our ultimate ruler, king, and judge. In verses 11 through 12, he makes the point that if we disobey God's word, we're rejecting his rule, which was the whole point. If we're not loving one another, then we're placing ourselves above God's word, saying, I don't need to do that. I can pick and choose what scriptures I want to follow. And we're actually putting ourselves in the place of God. And so now in verses 13 through 17, what James is doing, he's fleshing this on out further, saying, and let me tell you how God's rule is meant to affect our lives. So here in verses 13 through 17, how does God's rule affect the way we make plans, the way we view our future? In verses, five, uh, in verses 1 through 6 in chapter 5, how does God's rule bring judgment on those who persecute his people? In, ch- in uh, verses 7 through 12 of chapter 5, God's rule is meant to bring peace and patience uh, for those who are suffering. In verses 13 through 18 of chapter 5, God's rule is a means of bringing comfort and hope to those who are sick. So the entire rest of the chapter or, of the book is all based upon what does it mean to live as God's people under his rule. And so that's how we got here. That's what we're looking at. And so we begin our, our passage, and James rebukes the church for acting presumptuously. So what does the word presumptuously mean? It's a good thing to start with. Definitions are helpful. Uh, the sin of presumption is to speak or act in a certain way because you believe you have the right to do so even when you don't. Um, It is an act of arrogance. It flies in the face of humility. The one who presumes has an exalted view of self. In fact, uh, there's many examples in the Bible. One of them is in Matthew chapter 3, where John the Baptist rebukes the Pharisees who are coming to him. Let me read. Chapter 3, verse 7 of Matthew says, but when he, John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So here the Pharisees are coming and they believe that they are God's people and they base that their acceptance before God on their lineage, their ancestral line to Abraham, and saying, well, we're God's people. Obviously, we're accepted before God. Obviously, now, we are righteous. We can live how we want. And John's saying, no, no, do not presume you're God's people just simply because you can trace your lineage, even if you don't have faith in God. And so, so we see the sin of presumption throughout God's word where we speak 
or act in a certain way, believing we have the right to do something, even when we don't. And so how has the church acted presumptuously here in James? Well, according to our text, the church is making plans for the future apart from dependence on God. And we see this in verse 13. Verse 13 indicates that we have certain members of the church making plans for their work for the next year. Verse 14 reveals the irony of such um, uh, planning, which we'll look at shortly. Verse 15 says, what you ought to do is trust in God. So that's what's helpful in this verse. They're making plans, and he says, you should have been trusting in God, which then means we know they're making plans and not trusting in God. Verse 16, James will rebuke the church for boasting in their arrogance. Now, before we keep going, let's just be clear. Making plans is not sinful. Um, in Proverbs, like Proverbs chapter 6, uh, we see that making plans and, and looking forward to the future and investing in those kind of things is, is actually considered wise. Paul in the New Testament planned out his missionary journeys. So the issue is not uh, should we make plans. The issue is how do we make plans. That's what he's zeroing in on. Not if, but how. I mean, think about this. You come home from work, and at the top of your stairs, you're greeted by your seven-year-old child who has been waiting for you all day. He has pictures, charts, and a map, and he tells you he has decided the family is going to go on a vacation tomorrow. He has picked out the plane tickets. He has picked out the, uh, the rental car, you know, the red Mustang he has chosen. He's picked out the destination, and he turns and he says, all I need is your credit card. I mean, what, what would be your response? Nervous laughter? Um, I mean, it'd be kind of a, a ridiculous situation. Uh, no seven-year-old has the power, the right, the authority to make plans that affect the whole family apart from the dependence on the parents. And that's exactly what James is wanting us to see here, is that it would be arrogant just for a seven-year-old to make plans for the parents, so it is arrogant for us to make plans apart from God. That's what he's wanting us to see. Uh, The sin of presumption, remember, it's to trusting in our abilities rather than God's. It's to act with an exalted view of ourself. Um, And a lie that pervades our culture today is that you are enough. You've probably heard that. You'll hear that even within church circles at times. You'll hear people and Christians coming up, you're enough. You're good. You have everything that you need. But, you know, we don't find that anywhere in Scripture. We don't find that anywhere. In fact, what we see is the exact opposite. We see that because of sin, we're in desperate need for God's help. It's because we're not enough that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for us, that we could be saved and forgiven of our sins. It's because that we're not enough that as God saves us, he gives us his spirit that he would dwell within us, continuing to give us grace and mercy and strength and patience and hope and comfort each and every day. I mean, just think about what God's word says about you and I once we've believed in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that now in Christ we are new creations. In 2 Corinthians 5.20, he says we are now ambassadors for Christ, meaning that everything you and I do is meant to represent the rule of God as we live our lives. Colossians 3, uh, Colossians 3 verse 3 says your life is 
hidden in Christ. And in verse 4, it says, Christ is your life. I mean, so the whole point is that when we trust in Jesus Christ, we become these new creations, and everything about us has been united to Christ. He strengthens us. He enables us. He empowers us. All of our lives are meant to be lived for his glory. But what happens because of sin is we begin to act presumptuously, or what we've seen in James be double-minded. Remember, we've looked at this double-mindedness. He's talked about it throughout the entire book. This is something that when uh, a church or believers will say, well, I'm a Christian, but then we act like an unbeliever. We wear the Christian shirt, but we're acting no differently than those who do not believe in God. We say that we trust in God, but then yet we live independently of God. We say we're united to Christ, but then we live apart from Christ. This is why in verse 16, James says, your boasting is arrogance. You're boasting in that you have this right, this ability to do this in yourself, and it's arrogant. And he's wanting them to see it. Now, why? Why is it arrogant for the church, for you and I, to be making plans apart from God? Well, he explains in verse 14. He says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So what's his point? His point is that we are finite creatures. Our, our knowledge is finite. James' point is that we make plans for the future. We don't know what the future holds, right? Like we make our plans, we plan everything out that we want to have happen, and then something happens and our plans either don't happen at all, or they're totally different than what we thought they were going to be. Uh, This last Christmas season, my family and I were going to be flying down the day or two after Christmas to go and see my family in California, and that didn't happen because of health things that occurred. Here in Washington, I, I just think every day we're reminded of finite knowledge, the Weather Channel, right? It's going to rain, it might be sunny, it might snow, it's for sure going to be cloudy. I mean, like, we have no idea what it's going to be here. Uh, My wife was supposed to be in Texas this weekend. Well, she's right here. Um, So obviously, plans did not work out. Um, What James wants us to see is that we can make plans, but we have no power to actually carry them out because we can't control the future, and we don't know what will happen. Now, this is very different than God, though. Like, when we're in God's Word, what we see is that He doesn't only have the ability to make plans, but He has the power to make sure His plans actually come to fruition. In Isaiah chapter 44, we see this. Verse 6, it says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last, meaning I am the beginning and the end, I am eternal. He says, Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? So now he's going to say, who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. So his thing is, you want to see if there's another God? Let's bring him up. See if he can tell you what's going to happen. See if he can make it happen. Let's let's bring him up, all of them. Who who do you want to bring? Who is your witness here, is what God is saying. And then he says in verse 8, Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? There is no rock. I know not 
any. His point is, I've told you what's going to happen. I've told you what's going to happen through prophecies and, and with his people. And then it's happened. And he says, you're the witnesses to these very things. In fact, when we look at the birth of Christ, there are hundreds of testimonies in the Old Testament that all come to fruition in the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Constantly, God is saying what he is going to do, and then he does it as a means of demonstrating not only his power, but his faithfulness and his goodness. But James wants us to know not only is our knowledge finite, but he wants us to see that our lives are finite. James compares our existence to a mist. Now that word can be translated smoke or vapor. Um, I always like on cold days, day like today, we, when we left our house, I think it was 34 degrees. When you breathe, you know, you, you get to see your, your breath for a moment. Like, I'm, I'm 40 years old. I get entertained by that every single, I just think it's neat. It's fascinating. But how long does that breath stay there? Two, three seconds. And then, and then what? It's gone. No longer do you see it. That's you. That's me. That's what James is calling us. He's wanting us to have a a proper assessment of ourselves. He wants us to see ourselves rightly in the biblical understanding. And he says, you are a vapor. You're a mist. Now, this isn't to say that we're unimportant. That's not his point. The context is not leading us to that conclusion. After all, we know that being made in the image of God, we are precious and valuable to God, but we are a mist, meaning we are finite, we are temporary. The world doesn't revolve around you and I and our, and our plans that we make. We are limited people. I mean, think about it. Everything about you and I is limited. We're limited in our energy, our ability, our talent, our breath, our strength, our patience. That's always a good one to be reminded of our limitedness, limited abilities there. Everything is about, about us is limited. Our days are limited. The amount of breaths that we take are limited. The problem is we often forget this truth. It slips to the back of our minds, which is why I titled the message, The Hidden Sin of Presumption. I don't think we always see it. In fact, I know we don't always see it. I don't think the church here is making plans going, ha, oh, we're going to defy God today. But it's happening in the way that they're living. And I think often when we begin to fall into the sin of presumption, it's a hidden sin that begins within our heart. And James is going to help us to see that later. But what happens is we begin to believe that we are the captains of our own destiny. We begin to live independently of God. Or at least we pick and choose the areas we're dependent upon God and the areas that we're not dependent upon God. And so I just ask you to think through for a moment Are there areas of life that you would say that you're not submitting to God? And be careful. It's easy to say, well, no, I submit all areas to my life, all areas of my life to God. Are there areas where if you were to look and examine your life, you would say, I'm I'm pretty much coasting right there. I, I go about my day. I go to work. I do these things. I clean the house. I take care of kids. And, of course, I say I'm a Christian. But how does my faith actually influence and affect those things and i think if we're honest there are always areas in our life where we can see we're just kind of cruising through so how are we supposed to respond to this then 
How do we respond to verse 14 where James says, you're, you're, you're a mist, you're smoke, you're vapor. Well, I think James is calling us to intentionally humble ourselves and trust in the omnipotent rule of God. So it's a big point, but I think this is all what James is saying. He's saying, I want you to intentionally humble yourselves and trust in the omnipotent rule of God. The all-powerful rule. Now, I say that because we come to verse 15, and James says, now this is what we ought to say. And don't you wish like this was everywhere in the Bible? All right, so you did this. This is what you should have done. Like, would that not just be extra helpful? But James is helpful here. And he says, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. He says, that's what we need to say. If the Lord wills, we will do this or do that. So James is wanting the church to intentionally articulate their dependence upon the rule of God. And and when we look at God's word, we actually see people doing this, like Paul, 1 Corinthians 4.19. This is what he says, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. 1 Corinthians 16.7, for I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. Or think of Jesus when he's in the garden, the night that he's about to be arrested. He says this in Matthew 26, 42. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. So are we supposed to actually say these words in verse 15? If the Lord wills, we will do this or do that. Every time we make plans, like we're going to the grocery store later today. Well, if the Lord wills, I'm going home today. If the Lord wills. I mean, do we say that? Is that what we're, is that what we're supposed to do? Well, I'd say yes and no. Yes, for one, James says, say it. Number two, we actually have biblical examples of people saying these things. So, yeah, I, I think we are supposed to say it. I think it's a way of intentionally reminding ourselves as we make plans who we are and who we're not. It's also a great way to communicate to our spouse, to our children, our loved ones, those around us in the workplace, that we understand that God is the one who governs all of history. But I would also say, no, we don't need to say them as if these words are magic words and and that they automatically prevent us from sinning. I mean, God is not a genie that if we come to him the right way and simply say the few words, rub the lamp the right way, that he will then automatically give us the things that we want. I think James, what he wants us to see is, how am I intentionally acknowledging God's rule over my life? I think that's what he wants us to get to. How am I making sure that I have not forgotten my finiteness? I mean, think about that. Now, if you're a a parent, or a spouse, how are you helping your loved ones see that every aspect of our lives are dependent upon God? I mean, parents, especially, don't don't take this for granted. Your children, they watch everything that we do. How are you helping them to see that everything that we do is dependent upon God and His grace and His love and His mercy and His power? Or are they learning to trust more in you and your power? Again, it's the hidden sin of presumption. I think it it sneaks into our life, and we're often not aware of it, which is why we have this amazing passage where, by grace, James is bringing it to our 
to our minds that we would see where we're beginning to act presumptuously. So how do we, how is it that we're to trust in the omnipotent rule of God? How is it that we ensure that we don't fall into the hidden sin of presumption? Well, I think there's at least two answers. There's probably many more, but at least starting here. Number one, we need to rightly read and respond to God's word. If we go back to James, James 1.22, one of the key verses in the entire book, we've mentioned it many times, hopefully you have it memorized, where it says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. He says, God has given us his word that we would read it and we'd rightly respond to it. And so God, what we understand is when we look at this Bible, all 66 books of it, what we have is this this picture of God who has revealed himself. And all throughout the Bible, he reveals his might, his power, and his rule. We're inundated with texts that speak of the power and the kingship of our God. I mean, think about uh, Psalms, Psalm 33. It's a pretty neat passage that, that has much to say about God. In Psalm 33, verse 8 and 9, we have God speaks creation into existence, just this demonstration of his power. In verses 10 through 11, we're told that his plans cannot be thwarted. In Isaiah chapter 40, we read that God never grows weary or tired. Do you know that? Do you know why he doesn't? Because he is power. He doesn't have power. He doesn't rest like you and I, so he gets re-energized. He is power, and he's infinite. So he has infinite power, and he's eternal, meaning he's always existed. So for all of eternity, he has infinite power because he is powerful. When we come into the, to the minor prophets, we have many, many descriptions of God and his power. Nahum is a wonderful example. Now, I encourage you, read the book of Nahum. It's three chapters long. Probably most of you haven't been there lately, uh, but it's an amazing book. And in chapter 1, we're given all these pictures of God and his might and his power and his rule. And Nahum 1, this is what we read. This is a quick summary. Um, for one, just know, Nahum's about God's wrath that is going to come, across, uh, come upon the Assyrians. Um, and so it's written to God's people, letting them know that the Assyrians are going to be judged for their wickedness. And so uh, in chapter 1, we're having these pictures of, of who God is, and de- especially his power and his wrath that's going to come forward. So we read in Nahum 1 that mountains melt before the presence of God. Just think, Mount Rainier just melts like butter in a microwave. With a word, he can dry up the seas and the oceans. His wrath can turn from his wrath can turn the lush forests and farmlands into withered destruction at his very presence rocks just split in half now just think about that rocks inanimate objects the presence of god comes and they split in the fear of his wrath and power all throughout the bible we have these pictures of this god who is in immeasurable power. In fact, when we come into the New Testament, through the life of Christ, we see Jesus coming, healing all diseases, casting out demons, turning water into wine, multiplying just a few loaves and fishes into feeding thousands with it, raising the dead. And of course, the greatest act is not the act of creation, 
but that the Son, Jesus Christ, who is God, became flesh like you and I so that he would live and one day die on a cross, absorbing the wrath of God for you and I to absorb his wrath against our sins, paying the penalty of our sins. And then three days later, rising from the grave where he would conquer sin, death, and Satan. So all throughout the Bible, we have these pictures of God and his power, his infinite power. And then, like in Ephesians 1, we have this. In him, we have obtained an inheritance. So you and I, we have an inheritance in Christ because we've been saved. It says, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So how do we know that we'll actually receive the inheritance that we've been given? How do you know? Like if I promise you something, would you get it? Eh, maybe. Depends what happens. You know, if I lose it, you know, where the stock market goes, like, like I don't know. But how do we know we're going to get our inheritance? Because what we read is that according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And we have 66 books in the Bible displaying the might, the wonder, the power of this God. And now he says, I'm bringing everything under my rule. All things. So we can believe in every single promise that he gives us. Because throughout 66 books, he has displayed his perfect faithfulness to accomplish every act that he has given. There's nothing outside the sovereign rule of God. So we have all these descriptions of God's infinite power. And one thing we see is that God's power is different than ours. Like, like if, I'm, if I'm the general of an army and I'm going to go against another army, what am I going to do? I'm going to look at my resources. What does my men look like? What kind, of, you know, what kind of soldiers are they? How many tanks do I have? And, and whatever else I'm going to be measuring. And I'm going to look, well, do I have more than the other guy? Or am I, or am I stronger than the other guy? Because when I'm going to evaluate my power, I need to look at my resources. I need to look at what I have. But God does not look outside himself because God is power. He's not looking at creation going, am I strong enough? He's not looking at the church going, man, can I accomplish, you know, really the gospel going to all nations with these people? Can, can they do what I've asked them to do? No, all of his plans come true because he is the power to bring them about because it's not dependent upon resources. He is power. This is why we read in, in Psalm 33, 17. Again, keep going back to Psalm 33. We don't trust in the war horse for victory, but who do we trust in? God. It says it doesn't actually matter who has more resources. It doesn't actually matter who has more abilities. What matters is do we trust in the presence of God? And so, so we have all of these texts in God's word leading us to trusting in God, leading us to beholding that our God is powerful, our God is mighty, so that when we look at ourselves, we would see, I am not. I'm finite, I'm limited, and therefore what will I do? Humbly, willingly, and joyfully trusting in God right? So what does that look like? Well, that leads us to another step that we could take. The second answer. The first one is that we'd rightly read and respond to God's word. The second is we need to joyfully come to God in prayer. 
James has talked a lot about prayer so far in the book. In James 1, he says, if you lack wisdom, what? Ask God, and he will do what? He will give it to you. Prayer is one of the primary means in which we display our dependence upon God. It's one of the primary means. When we pray, we're, we're literally saying, I am not enough. I need you. I depend upon you. When we pray, we're acknowledging our finite abilities, and we're acknowledging God's infinite power. So, so I, I would just encourage you, and I ask you, to evaluate what does your prayer life look like? Does your prayer life presently reveal your dependence upon God or your independence? Now, I have to say that, that I wrestled with this a lot this week. I mean, I, I feel like where I'm at, I'm always trying to spend more time in prayer. And yet, I always find that prayer seems to be fleeting from me. You ever feel like that? I mean, I think in, in one way, many Christians are always like, yes, we'd like to grow in our prayer life. And then... We, you know, we, we say that on Monday, and on Friday we go, well, well how do we do it? Well, yeah, I still got to grow in it. I don't know if I made any ground on it. And so oftentimes, and this is, so I wrestled with this. I think what we think is we just need to prioritize better. It just doesn't have a high enough priority. But I think that's actually wrong. Because I don't think that actually goes deep enough to what the issue is. Um, my lack of prayer is me boasting in my arrogance it's doing exactly what we have here in james chapter four it, it's not just that i'm not prioritizing it's and i'm actually thinking i actually got this i actually can do this so when i'm planning on praying and then something comes and threatens that time that i'm going to spend time in prayer and i go do that it's me ultimately saying no well, technically I, I can probably do it anyway i can trust in my abilities i, I can make it happen I can squeeze by. I don't, I don't really need to do that. It's more like the icing on the cake, but technically you still got the cake, right? At least I think that's how we wrestle with it, how we think through it. So yes, there's, there's not a prioritizing, but there's a deeper issue. It's that I'm actually boasting in my own abilities at that moment when I think that I don't need to pray. But the truth is, like, I, I can't pastor can't be a husband be a dad be a friend be, be anything without God's grace and his mercy coming into my life and it's the same for every single one of us and again this is why I titled the hidden sin of presumption I this sin kind of keeps sneaking its way I think into our lives in different ways and if we're not careful we can fall prey to it it can be failing to make plans can be failing to make, um, just going about our day, saying that we're Christians, but, but in reality, we're living like anyone else. And just think about that. How does, your late, how does your day, how does your activities look different because you're a believer? And I think this is what leads to the final point of James. So when we close and we get to verse 17, we see James warns the church against the sins of omission. Now, if you get into some commentaries, like verse 17 is a little bit debated. And a lot of people will come and say, I don't think verse 17 fits. I think it's just added on. Like when you're in the book of Proverbs, and you just kind of, Proverbs isn't like a story, like a narrative that just kind of flows. Like you can have a proverb here in the very next verse. It's a different proverb talking about pretty different things. And, and you can have that. And so some people go, well, 
James talks a lot about just kind of living wisely. So maybe this is just like a proverb. Um, just so you know, I completely threw out all that reasoning, and I think it's stupid, and I don't think it makes sense, and I think it goes against the biblical text. Uh, so that's me, and I'll now see if I can convince you through what I believe the Bible is saying. See, we, we normally think of sin of that which God calls us not to do. This is what we call the sins of commission, like, like lying and stealing. Like if someone lies, you go, well, you, st- you, you sinned, right? You committed an offense by lying against someone, by stealing something from someone. But that's not what James is addressing here in this passage. The whole text has been what? Addressing not the sin of commission, but what? The sin of omission. Now, this is when we have not done what we should have done. So, maybe a quick illustration. A parent might ask their child when they come home from school, what'd you do today? You ever do that? Aren't you just amazed at the incredible answers you get? The depth of those answers from my children astound me daily. Um, Or the lack of information that you get. Um, But the child will say, you know, we did math, we did spelling, we did PE, blah, 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 hung out with friends. What the child doesn't know is that the office has already called you and informed you that, you know, little Johnny has been in a fight today with someone else. And conveniently, your child just left that information out. It just didn't seem to make the important list when they're telling you about their day. They conveniently omitted it. They know they should have told you, but they simply just didn't tell you. This is what James wants to see. See, sin is not just doing that which is wrong, but it's also failing to do that which is right. And there's a difference here. So James, like loving pastor, he's coming alongside the church, reminding them of the rule and the might and the power of our God. He's reminding us of the joy that we have in trusting in God. He's reminding us of how sin will continually seek to draw us away from trusting in God. He's wanting us to see the foolishness. You're a mist, vapor. Why would you trust in yourselves when you have the infinite, almighty, powerful Father who loves you and tells you, ask, and I will give it to you. So I believe... 17 fits perfectly in this text as concluding this section where the church by acting with this presumptuous sin is is committing a sin of omission they they should be trusting in god they should be saying these things but they're not that's i think where you and i are a lot we're probably not murdering people fighting people Hopefully not lying, stealing things. There's certainly things that we do commit. We lose our temper. We we lash out at people. But how much of our sins is simply the sin of omission? Well, I I should have been looking out for the needs of someone else. Someone was hurt in front of me. I, I should have tried to help them and meet their needs. I didn't come to God in prayer, and how could I have come to God in prayer over my plans, over my day, or whatever happened in my life? I think the sin of omission is something that as we grow in our maturity in Christ, we also grow in our offense of our sins of omission, because we're often not thinking about those. And it's easy for us to begin cruising through life, drifting through life, 
We know what not to do, but do we know what we are to do also? So I encourage you, I, I want to encourage you to just take time today, wrestle with the truth that God is a supreme ruler and king and father. Wrestle with the fact that he loves you. He has infinite resources because he is perfectly powerful. And then think, how am I living in light of those truths? How am I reading and responding to God's word because he has all power, because he's governing all things, and because he desires to guide and give grace in my life? How am I depending upon God in prayer? How am I making plans and subjecting all of my plans to him? And my plans probably aren't always bad. Hopefully they're, they're mostly good. We go throughout a week, this is what I'm hoping to do. How are we bringing those before God? And remember, our God is gracious. He sent his son Jesus to the cross to die for us that we could have life, eternal life. So this submission to him, this acknowledging his rule, ought to be a joyful, willing submission. He's already demonstrated his love and his grace and his faithfulness. And now he beckons us to come and to submit ourselves to him, trust in his grace, trust in his power, trust in his sovereignty as we go throughout each day that he would be glorified. So let me pray, and then we're going to partake of communion. Our Father, our Father, we come to you today realizing that, that we're all guilty of presumptuous sins at times. And we're all guilty of these sins of omission at times. And Lord, I just pray that even at this moment, that Lord, just, just press on our life, press on me, press on all of us. Just reveal, is there any area that I'm just not trusting in you? Is there an area where I'm trusting more in my abilities and my strengths and my talents rather than submitting to you? Lord, I just pray that each and every one of us would just willingly just confess that to you right now. Does God reveal that? That we might confess any of those sins? That we might live as you have called us to? For you are calling us to live in submission to you for our good, for our joy. Lord, may we know that. Lord, we thank you that the reason we are alive today is because of your power, because of you giving us breath and the reason we have spiritual life today is because of the grace that you've given us in Jesus Christ. The reason we know that we'll receive an inheritance and spend eternity with you in the new heavens and new earth is because of your grace. Lord, may we, may we now, each and every day, just trust in your perfect grace for the way we parent, for the way we do marriage, for the way we interact with, with our loved ones, with family, with friends with our enemies, with, with anyone that we come in contact with. May we despise any sin that would lead us to live independently of you, God. God, help us, especially as parents, to think about how do we help our children to see the beauty of the truth that, God, you rule, that you are king. How do we help them to lovingly submit their lives to you now? So God, I just pray for each and every person here that through this text today, we have beheld your glory and your power and your might. 
And Lord, may we desire to live in submission to that. In your name, Jesus, amen.